So it's that time of year again, the time when you look back at the top this or the top that. And so I figured I should do my own version of that. I often encourage clients to take time in December to look back at the year that was and ask themselves, what are the lessons learned this year that will inform my goals and my strategies for the upcoming year? So I decided we should take that question and pose it looking at the nonprofit sector as a whole. I asked Stacy Palmer, the editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, to join me in this endeavor. Chronicle lives up there at 35,000 feet, and Stacy has a vantage point about this sector that few others have. It's also been an interesting year for Stacy and the folks at the Chronicle as they shift from reporting about us to being one of us, moving from a for-profit publication to a nonprofit organization. And yes, she will tell you that she is learning that being a nonprofit CEO is no walk in the park. As you listen to the two of us chat about the big nonprofit takeaways of the year and listen to Stacy's keen insights, consider them in the context of your own leadership, your own organization, your own sector within the sector. What have you learned this year that will help you move in the direction of greater impact in 2023? Here's hoping that our conversation today ignites you to engage in one of your own. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Stacy Palmer has served as a top editor since the Chronicle of Philanthropy was founded in 1988 and has overseen the development of its website, philanthropy.com. She plays a hands-on role in many Chronicle services, such as its Philanthropy Today daily newsletter and its webinar series, offering professional development for people involved in fundraising, grant-seeking, advocacy, marketing, and social media. Palmer has appeared frequently on radio and television to offer commentary on news in the nonprofit world. She's the editor of Challenges for Philanthropy and Nonprofits a book published by the University Press of New England that collects three decades of observations by the nonprofit activist and columnist Pablo Eisenberg. Before she helped found the Chronicle of Philanthropy, she was the editor for government and politics at the Chronicle of Higher Ed. She is a graduate of Brown University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in international relations. Stacy, I'm super happy to have you here today to share your insights with our listeners. Thank you, Joan. We've benefited so much at the Chronicle from all of your insights, so I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you. Excellent. Excellent. So before we get into some of the observations about trends and takeaways in 2022, let's talk about you for a moment and share with listeners the thinking that led to moving the Chronicle in this new direction from a for-profit publication to a nonprofit. Go. (laughs) Thanks, Joan, for asking that question. We're really excited about becoming a nonprofit because we decided we needed to figure out a way to grow and better serve our audiences. And as we looked at it, we realized that the best way to do it would be to separate from our parent company, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and become an independent organization. When we looked at it, we said, we could become a for-profit, we could become a nonprofit. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized that a nonprofit allowed us to focus on impact. And that was what was so crucial um, in terms of making that decision is that we really want to do what our readers do every day and look at the results that we're achieving and not put quite so much a premium on making sure that we're profitable. Now, of course, we still have to earn revenue and that is going to be you know, a big preoccupation. But I love putting the emphasis on getting results and serving our audience and growing, which is the exciting thing. We plan to double the size of our staff and our revenue over the next five years. Wow. That actually provides such a resource for the sector in an exponentially greater way. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary, 
and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. I'm just actually curious, how will it be different? Like you talked about impact, but like, is there an example of something that you might cover today that you might not cover or how you will approach editorial in a different kind of way? Yeah, I think one of the things that journalists often look at is, you know, how many page clicks did we get? And instead, what we want to be looking at, and we try to do this already now, but did we change how policymakers think about things, how foundations think about things, how nonprofits are adjusting their course? And if our stories can help people do that, our webinars, I think, do that already, we want to really make sure that we're leading to action in a different kind of way. So if a billion people read it, fantastic. But if the right hundred people read it and change their behavior, that might matter more. And so we're going to be looking at things that way. And it's a bit of a different mindset for the reporters to think about things that way, but one that I think is powerful and that the rest of journalism is moving in that direction too. I think we've all learned that this focus on, you know, clickbait is not a good thing for anybody. And we really need to focus on surfacing solutions and things that people can put to use. Um, And when you talk about clickbait, am I right when I'm thinking about an article about the deep, dark underbelly of the blah, 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 blah kind of tends to draw more clicks than sort of look what Interfaith Ministries in Asbury Park is doing with their farm. That that kind of thinking can drive a lot of clicks, and you're right. One of the things, though, that you know, everybody in journalism is looking at is, are people just tuning out to the news because it is so depressing? Many journalists themselves say they don't read newspapers anymore because it's too depressing and that they want to see how organizations are solving problems. That is the sweet spot for what nonprofits do and really the opportunity that we have to seize. We're not going to just be telling those stories to nonprofit professionals, but we are trying to influence local journalists to do better coverage of nonprofits and focus on the way that we're solving problems. Give people hope that there are some terrific ideas in their own communities. They just probably haven't heard enough about them. Well, and it's funny because I have, I think you and I talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, is it's almost like the nonprofit sector needs a publicist, that, <laughs> that, that, that the sector is very, very much taken for granted. You know, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, and if I were to go to 100 people who live in this town and who've lived in this town for a long time, and I asked them to talk about the nonprofits in town, I guarantee you they would list a few, but they would forget they would just not even, it would not even be on their radar screen. The dozens and dozens of organizations in this town that in my mind turned this town into a community and turned the residents into neighbors. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's true in almost every community. Um, and we really need to put the spotlight on these organizations, not just to make sure that people know their importance, but that they support them, that they think about jobs there, about volunteering, about doing all of the kinds of things that make our community stronger. All during the pandemic, um, I, I think I aged five years during the pandemic while remaining healthy, I might add. And so I, like many people of a certain age, watched David Muir's ABC World News Tonight, where the first 27 minutes was about how the world was going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> and how there was a, thank you, that was my mother speaking, and uh, <laughs> and about how there was a shortage of respirators. And then in the last two minutes, David Muir would say, finally tonight, and there would be some uplifting story about somebody who was doing something to make the world a better place, and it got two, three minutes tops. And, you know, it just feels like it's really high time, and I'm excited for you and what promise this presents, the chronicle of philanthropy and the sector as a whole. So I look forward to seeing Road Ahead for all of you. So I promised we would talk about takeaways from 2022. And we talked about a number of them when last we left. 
We had thought about five. It could be three. It could be six. But we don't have all day. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about things like trust in philanthropy and staff retention and how hard the jobs. I mean, we talked all, about all kinds of things, but I want to put the ball in your court and take them sort of one at a time of the things that you think, pun intended, are the sort of the big headline takeaways for you from 2022. And I will, uh, I will listen closely uh, uh, and I- interrupt appropriately. <laughs> Great. Well, there are so many lessons that everybody has learned, especially after these last couple of years, and it really has proved how resilient nonprofits can be. But the stresses have been enormous. You know, certainly what's on my mind, you know, looking ahead to 23 is whether the economy will go into recession and what that means for nonprofits. I don't think we can talk about this sector without talking about the economy. I don't want to spend this whole podcast talking about that at all. But that's critical. Nonprofits always can tell what's going on in the economy before anybody else because people are coming to them for services and they need help and they've consistently needed help in the you know wages have not kept up inflation is a big problem. We know that. So I think nonprofits are going to have to continue to address that and really to get that message out to their donors about the impact, especially that inflation means on their own pocketbooks. You know, it's really that the nonprofit faces the same thing the rest of us do when we go to the supermarket. The prices are higher, and that means that delivering services is harder right as more people are coming to us. So it's hard to talk about. And one of our columnists made the point that most people who give to nonprofits have never lived through the kinds of real inflationary periods that we saw 40 years ago. So we really do have to explain it. Don't assume that they understand it and make sure that those who can afford to give still do. That to me is the bright spot, even though it is challenging to raise money right now. Those who did well in this economy did very, very well, and they have extraordinary resources and the desire to give. We all know that so many people were sitting in their living rooms, not able to go out and do as many things as they used to. They thought hard about social purpose and what they want to do with their lives. We have to keep tapping into that and remember that there are plenty of people who have the willingness to give and the resources to do it and focus on them rather than on the people who are struggling and seriously have challenges to do that. So, you know, continued focus on major gifts. I would not be worried that the stock market goes up and down. People still have extraordinary ability to give. Really putting the focus there is is what I would urge folks to do. So we have to look out at the economy, but there are so many other issues that nonprofits are dealing with as well. So let's stay on economy and inflation for just a moment. And do you see this period of time as different from you've been in this seat for a while as different from 2008 and like like how different does it all feel i think that's a that that's an important question and then i want to talk a little bit about meaning and purpose yeah. Right now, it feels extraordinarily different than the 2008 financial crisis, where immediately you felt the impact. Foundations flipped out because they saw their assets going down. We, for six weeks, nobody posted a job on our site. Nonprofits were so frightened that they would not be able to hire. They all had freezes, and any vacant position that they had, they just pulled back on and wouldn't do it. I don't see that kind of feeling at all. I see everybody realizing that, you know, they need to keep at it. And, you know, there's not that nerve. Maybe it's because people went through 2008, but I don't think the economy is in that state or is that worrisome. Um, So thank goodness we're not going through that. And I think that, that if you add to that, that it's not like 2008, And then you add in the ingredient you just spoke about, which is a, you know, sort of a whole society in pods thinking of, not to sound totally uh, cliched, but like thinking about what their life actually means. Like my wife retired in 2020 and spent a great deal of time really exploring for herself What did meaning and purpose look like for her? Actually, in a podcast will ensue called I Just Want to Volunteer. Um, (laughs) But it is a combination, right? So it is not as bad 
And I think you have a lot more people who are, you know, if you think about our world as sort of a baseball stadium, because I love baseball, there are people in the stands and there are people on the field. And don't you think, and please disagree, but don't you think that there are just a boatload more people out in the stands that are just hungry to be invited onto the field? Absolutely. And, you know, it's people who are more toward the end of their working career saying, what purpose do I have? But it's also Gen Z is amazing. We all know that they are incredibly interested in social causes and have been. One of the things I've been talking to some researchers about is how incredibly engaged they want to be, you know, if you look compared to other generational data, you know, that they they are indeed off the charts is not our imagination. We are all really seeing that from the researchers who study it, but they've also been through an incredibly tough time. So one of the things that, you know, and I hope we'll have a story about this, but one of the researchers I talked to said, she's incredibly worried that when these people come to nonprofit work, which they will, because that's what they want to do when they graduate, they're so stressed out already that we're all going to need to provide them with mental health resources to cope and make sure that they really believe in purpose. So we're going to have a new generation of people incredibly committed, but also, you know, really not in the best place to be able to tackle all these challenges. So that's going to be a new thing for all of us to think about. But I think throughout society, we've got everybody re-examining what's important, what matters. And this is our moment to tap into it because it might not last. I totally agree with you. And I do think in some ways, at least one of the most significant antidotes to this issue of the economy and how to how to address the fact that the needs will increase for many nonprofits in terms of their yeah. services and the and the work that they do. We went through with economy. We could be playing family feud here or Jeopardy. <laughs> okay, so what what what's what's the next takeaway you have from 2022? Um, you mentioned trust, and that's the one that if the economy wasn't so vital and important, I would put as my number one thing only because without it, nonprofits can't operate. We need faith in our nonprofit organizations. And of all parts of society that we should have the highest trust in, it should be nonprofits. And yet, as people are looking at institutions, the pandemic didn't do a lot of good for any institution. Everybody, you know, felt a little bit disappointed by many of the institutions in society. Still, nonprofits do better than many other types of organizations. The media especially has very little trust. Um, So I always have to acknowledge that when I talk about this issue. But nonprofits have seen a decline and businesses have seen an increase, comparatively speaking, as the ones that can solve problems. And I think one of the things nonprofits need to do is really talk much more about the results they're achieving. And that's what we talked about at the beginning the conversation about that need for a PR machine. And I don't think that is in any way being fluffy, but, you know, nonprofits do extraordinary work, but they tend to talk sometimes about their own needs. We need to build this building or we need to, you know, be able to add more buses to the fleet, you know, that's going out and delivering the food. That's fantastic and important. But really, how many people's lives did you change? And we need to talk about those things. We need to come together and talk about those things. And that's one of the reasons it doesn't happen in the coordinated way that it should, but every nonprofit leader should bring together several other nonprofits in their community and talk about how do we tackle this trust issue together? If you just do it one by one, that's not going to work. But if we put together, you know, a real impact statement about what nonprofits are achieving and talk about it in a way that shows what would happen if these nonprofits disappeared. That's going to be really powerful for government officials, for donors, for people who are considering coming to work at nonprofits. And I think it's wrong to ignore this idea. Sometimes people will say, well, everybody's trust is dropping. That's true. But what else do nonprofits have but the trust? A business can say, well, you know, you like my tires and they're really trustworthy, uh, you know, and even if we do terrible things to the planet, you're still going to buy my tires. But nonprofits can't say that. They need to be able to say, here's why we do good. Here's why it's important for you to give to us, to give us special tax benefits, to do all of the subsidies that, you know, nonprofits deeply depends on the trust. So I I think, you know, it's an error to not put more attention on that agenda. So that's why I wanted to say that. I would say it first, except for the economy. So that that's an important thing to do. 
So what's at the root in a nutshell? What do you think is is in at the root of this lack of trust? There are a lot of different things. One of them is that, you know, there and we saw this in the pandemic is this rise of really informal groups, mutual aid groups, local things that aren't constituted as charities or don't seem like bureaucracy. And a lot of people felt more comfortable giving to those kinds of organizations. It was tangible. You know, you'd have people set up a refrigerator that anybody could take milk out of or do whatever. Well, you felt like you were really making a difference and you were, which was fantastic. Nonprofits need to find ways to help people have that same feeling. If if we depended just on local groups to do those kinds of things, what would we find? We would find that some people would be left out. That's the whole point of what nonprofits are doing is looking for those who nobody else would help. So those informal efforts are tremendous, but we need to find other ways to get around them. So I think that idea that people don't feel connected, um, sometimes they feel like they're just an ATM machine to the nonprofit, really finding ways to help people feel emotionally tied to the giving. All of those things are really critical. And we've seen that amazing slide in the number of middle-class donors who are giving. Some people say, you know, that's about people, you know, feeling tapped out about inequality and those kinds of things. But some of it's about the way we raise money. And it's not always a positive feeling. And so I urge charities to look at different ways to think about how they attract donations. All of those things are true. I think that there's also a drop in the trust, you know, as there's a drop in the trust people have in institutions in general, right? And so particularly millennials and Gen Zs, they don't see a whole lot of examples of institutions that have actually have have actually been on it for them, right? There's and there's lots of evidence to suggest that institutions are not the, you know, that's why you see more movements and more org- local organizing. We do right. We do well by taking a lesson from that kind of playbook, of being nimble, being more adaptive, uh, and really enabling people to touch the work in a way that makes them want to come closer and closer, and ultimately as donors. So I think that feels very, very big one. And one of the things you're also pointing to, Stacey, is this emotional connection and the it's a, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, the extent to which organizations are or are not able to tell their stories with both the tangible, the head and the heart story. Right. So that I know that my money is being invested wisely and I know in my heart that it matters. Yes. People who listen to me hear me talk a lot about storytelling, that I believe that it is a foundational skill that every nonprofit leader and that staff and board needs. It's a muscle you have to build and exercise because it is it is this anecdote. It's, and it is totally connected to PR as well, but it is yeah. what's going to get somebody to come out of the out of the stands, right? Exactly. And, you know, adding that job description to the CEO, to the board members of communicators in chief, it's critical. We don't usually pay much attention to it. We look at people who are tremendous at, you know, doing something in the field, or perhaps they're good at raising money. But let's evaluate them on how well they communicate and make that, you know, the one of the top things that board members are responsible for doing as well as the people who work at a nonprofit. And that means giving everybody some tools to be able to do it. Nobody's going to do it without some help. Absolutely. Yeah, there was something that was coming to my mind about this. Move on to number three, Stacey. The next one is related, which is polarization. And, you know, I think we see so much of that obviously throughout society. Nonprofits are not the reason for it, but they certainly are expected to be the healers. And some people complain that they don't see nonprofits speaking to both sides of the aisle or doing enough of the bridging. And that builds some distrust as well. I think we're all responsible for trying to find ways to bring our communities together. And really, who better than nonprofits to be able to help people who sometimes have 
very different views, but maybe who all care about making sure that everybody in the community gets fed. You know, bring them together based on that. And especially because people were separated during the pandemic, it's an incredible moment to be able to do that. But I think we really have to address that challenge. And that goes beyond the political advocacy groups, but everybody needs to find a way to engage. I think it's It's about the common values we share in many ways. And I was coaching a client who is in the computer science arena. And computer science is not just computer science. Computer science is critical thinking. It's like as a whole host of things and probably needs to be totally reframed so that people don't immediately think robotics club when they think computer science. But it's also a serious economy generator. That's where the jobs are. And so if you take an issue like computer science education, you can talk to both sides of the aisle so easily, right? It's a win for everyone. It's about jobs. It's about education, right? And so I think that what you're saying here, Stacy, is that we've got to look at the core values that underpin the work we do and try to figure out the best possible ways to amplify those values so that they speak to people on both sides of the aisle. Because the truth of the matter is people hate this polarized society. <laughs> Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. Exactly. And so if nonprofits can be the key to changing things, that's what will build back the trust and really fix our society. So it's a hugely important mission. So we are having a conversation about the big takeaways from 2022 with Stacey Palmer, who has been the top editor at the Chronicle of Philanthropy since its founding in 1988, overseeing the development of its website, philanthropy.com and has just had her fingerprints all over every innovation that the Chronicle has made. And she has appeared frequently on radio and television to offer commentary on the nonprofit world. And we have her here and are lucky enough to be listening to her commentary on the nonprofit world here on our show. So we've talked about the economy and we've talked about trust and we've talked about polarization. Where to next, my friend? (laughs) The nonprofit workforce has to be a critical factor. We all know the great resignation took place across throughout our society. One of the things that I am really worried about is that I see a lot of people fleeing the sector entirely. It's one thing to think about changing jobs, and it's difficult for the organization that has to deal with people coming in and out. We'll talk about that in a sec. But the number of people who have left the nonprofit world because their wages are not competitive, the working conditions are not okay, that is a major gap. And it's happening especially, you know, for frontline workers at social services nonprofits. We just did a poll, though, of fundraisers and found that many of them do not expect to be in the profession two years from now. They are considering other things. They're being recruited away by businesses that respect their skills and that will pay them more and will allow them to work remotely. The lack of flexibility that many nonprofits have had in terms of saying, wait a minute, you all did this incredible work over these past two years. You got incredible things done. Now you have to come back to the office and do it the old way. That message is just not going across very well. And, you know, workers are rebelling in a lot of different ways. And we're not listening to them nearly enough. And I think that's one of the things that gives me great concern about making sure that there's enough talent in the nonprofit world to do all of the things that society is counting on. So that part seems to me to be at a crisis point. Stacy, do you see, you know, I actually saw the sort of the, the sunlight coming through the deep, dark clouds of the pandemic in the nonprofit sector in the sense that it demanded that the nonprofit sector reevaluate how it 
did its work, that it evaluated the power of piloting, innovation, adaptability, right? You know, a client that said, we had previously thought we'd introduce telehealth and it would take a year and we did it in two weeks. You probably have heard many, many stories like that. Are you saying that you think too many nonprofits are going back to business as usual, which was not what it was cracked up to be? Yeah, you know, and it's not everywhere, but we're hearing it from the people we interview constantly. And one of the things that the reporters who are out talking to folks keep saying to me is that, you know, no matter what topic they're interviewing people on, it often isn't about the workforce, it isn't about their jobs, but people end up talking about their unhappiness, that their bosses aren't listening to them nearly enough, that they're struggling to make ends meet, and that there just doesn't seem to be that respect for all of the incredible things that people did during this difficult time. Now, to be sure, we found examples of tremendous nonprofits that are adapting and being flexible and innovating. So I don't want to say that there are none that are doing it, but the prevailing view is that there is not enough focus on, especially the flexibility that people demonstrated that they could still do their work, but do it in different ways. What also struck me, we did a poll of fundraisers and talked to hundreds of them, was that many of them felt they did not have adequate health benefits. They did not have adequate wages. Very basic things that we can all address. You know, I think we take, we assume that people who are in the profession, especially those that are in charge of development, are doing pretty well. They're not. And some of them are really struggling to make ends meet. So, you know, I think if you examine that and look at other things, we really need to be clearer about what our values are and what it really takes to do the work. There may be some organizations where you really do need to be in the office every day, but making sure people understand why and perhaps giving them flexibility of Fridays off or other things like that might end up working out. But we need to grapple with this because, you know, certainly because of the demands of business, you know, people have said, you know, I can see the sign, you know, across from my office that says, you know, here for $18 an hour and I'm making 15, you can get this job, you know, in the at a for-profit company, they're just going to go for it. How much do you think, where do you think the board's role is? in this debate, not debate, but the, you know, the, the challenge, the takeaway that you list here is, do you think that the boards push, boards push back and say, we got to go back to business as usual? I mean, I'm not, this, per, not, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder Perhaps that. it's that pressure in part from board or from chief executives who in some ways just themselves grew up in a different environment yeah. and didn't see that it's possible to do work in different ways. I mean, I, I had a very traditional career and work, and I couldn't imagine that we were going to be able to put the Chronicle out week in, week out, and do all of those things with all of us scattered everywhere. And I was scared to death the first month of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, I realized we were doing it, we were doing it better, and we were, had more output. Yeah. And people were able to work really well. So that's transformed my own view about whether we need offices and how we think about things. You still need accountability. You still need ways of building connection, for sure. I I just think we haven't been listening enough to our colleagues about what kinds of changes need to happen. And I think it's about that, which might be that, you know, the board members are more remote from that process of listening yeah. to the employees. They may think about it. This is a problem with boards in general. Sometimes they apply what they see in their own work to the nonprofit and not realizing that, you know, it's a very different situation much of the time. And the kind of work people are doing is very different. It can be emotionally taxing in a very different way. Um, yes. You know, I talked about the mental health concerns of Gen uh -huh. Z. The mental health toll on nonprofit workers has been huge. They've seen enormous kinds of things. We talked to so many people who would, were sleeping in their offices during the pandemic yeah. to get the work done. That's how dedicated they are. But those after effects are big. Yeah. And so we need to pay attention to them. The other thing, back to storytelling for a second, too, is that I, I really work, you know, sort of with my coaching clients and others to really make the case that boards aren't going to remember unless you tell them. N not because they, you know, not because they have amnesia, but because this is a right. volunteer gig for them, right? And so you have to market 
I, I was talking to one client and he was just doing the most remarkable things during the pandemic. And I said to him, if I was on your board, would I know all these things? <laughs> right? And the answer was, I don't really have time to tell them. And I said, you have to make the time because yeah. a year from now, you're going to want to continue to innovate, collaborate, pilot, things that feel risky to boards. And you're going to have to actually make the case, illustrate proof of concept, and you have it. And so I also think that that's another piece of the puzzle here is that business as usual was not what it was cracked up to be. Innovation, piloting, risk-taking is not... <laughs> Oddly enough, for a sector that is about making change, it can be pretty change resistant. And yes. much of that, much of that comes from risk averse boards that live at the fiduciary level and don't right. actually get up to higher altitudes. Yes, exactly. So um, I bet you got another one up your sleeve. We have economy, <laughs> trust, polarization, uh, the great resignation, pay equity. What's the next category? <laughs> One of the things that I am really pleased by, because we've talked about a lot of things that are pretty difficult and depressing in this conversation, <laughs> although I think um, it will lead to good change, I agree um, with you. is the excitement that I've seen of nonprofits that are really learning from one another, especially about you know how to change the way society thinks about some of our grittiest problems. One of the cover stories we did recently was about the gun violence movement. Yes, and, I love know, this you, story. I'm so glad you're talking about this. When you think about gun violence, I mean, we've seen Uvalde, we saw Buffalo, all those kinds of things. And you started thinking, nothing is working. It, it does not matter what we do. Federal legislation is stalled. And, you know, finally, we've gotten some victories, but not enough. And then you talk to the nonprofits that are actually making a difference. And it turns out that in the states, at the local level, many of them have had tremendous victories. And we are much better off than we ever thought we would be, in part because after Sandy Hook, some of the parents in particular decided they were going to turn their grief into action, and they studied how other movements made a difference. So they looked at tobacco, they looked at marriage equality, all the other things that nonprofits, it seemed like they were never going to be able to pull off and finally did. What were some of the lessons that worked? They put them all together and really started thinking about how do we work at the community level to make a difference? One of the things that some of the parents groups did was they're going into schools and working with with young people directly to make sure they know how to identify threats. And what happened is that that education was so powerful that sometimes when they're doing the classes, people will come over to the leaders and say, you know, I'm really worried about this person in my class. This person seems suspicious. I'm really seeing something. And they have uncovered major efforts to unfortunately bomb the schools or to do a mass shooting. They've stopped them because they're arming the students to talk about these things, to talk about them openly and really making a difference. So, you know, it's very difficult that we're in this stage in our society, but there are effective techniques. There are loads of groups that are working at the community level to take victims of violence, gang members, others, have them really helping to make a difference in averting other kinds of things. Those things are working. And the powerful thing is that policy is changing in many places. Businesses are doing different things. States and counties and localities are doing different things. We don't see that picture necessarily if we only measure it at the federal level. But if you look at the kinds of things these groups are doing, they're making an enormous difference. But what I love is the fact that they're doing it in research. It's evidence-based. They're saying, what worked for somebody else on a totally different topic? Then applying those lessons in their own issue area. We can all learn from that. That's one of the things you know the Chronicle will be writing much more about is those kinds of transferable lessons. Early childhood education is another thing where nonprofits have figured out how to bring together people in a bipartisan way. Education should be the kind of thing that people on both sides of the aisle talk about, but they haven't always. And so nonprofits have been able to work together and find messages that work and end up funneling more federal state money into early childhood 
education, which we all know is incredibly important. So I think those are the kinds of things where we have to learn from one another and just celebrate those victories more. It's not all doom and gloom out there. Nonprofits are making a difference. The money that foundations and big donors give is incredibly powerful. So we need to get that message across too. It's working. It's not just that the nonprofits are brilliant. It's that somebody financed them and listened to their message that they collaborated as funders and put more money in rather than going off in their own direction as we know, funders sometimes have a tendency to do. Um, many of them are working together much more collaborative than, than they have in the past. And that's making an enormous difference. So those are the things that give me real hope that we are on the cusp of changing things in a much better way. I really think this is an important thing to amplify, this movement's learning from one another. Because moving the needle on in the court of public opinion, right, it's not a recipe exactly. But so many different movements are, that's what their work is about, is yeah. how do I change hearts and minds on this? How do I move that needle of public opinion? You know, so I was at GLAD during the marriage equality, during all of that. And we learned really valuable lessons. And the, the and it took a long time to learn those lessons. There were yes. a lot of things that did not go well for a long time until finally it did. People think, oh, it's all changed. But no, I'm sure you learned a ton. Right. And, you know, frighteningly, the pendulum seems to be swinging yes. back in another way, which you can never let up. But one exactly. of the key things going back to values, and we talked about it at the beginning of this conversation, is that we were absolutely convinced early on that this was an issue of rights, that, that straight people who got married had no idea that there were 1,350 rights and responsibilities that came with a marriage license, and that those rights were not afforded to same-sex couples. And that message fell absolutely flat on people until we shifted to values, love, commitment, those things that mean something to every human being, right? Exactly. Right. When you walk down the, you know, when you walk down the aisle, you're not thinking, oh, now I have these 1,356 <laughs> rights. And so we thought that was really important because we didn't have them and we wanted them. Right. But unless you actually start to put yourself in the shoes of the, the straight folks walking down the aisle and think about how they think about marriage, right, you're not going to get where you need to go. And, I, and, and no doubt we stood on the shoulders of other movements as well during that period of time. And I also think, going back to what you said earlier about local organizing, you know, not everything has to be a nonprofit organization, right? right? right. <laughs> and that's, an, <laughs> that's another thing we also have to be open to is different ways of organizing. And I think there are probably too many 501c3s that are granted every year by the federal government. <laughs> but all of these things are in the service of making the world more fair, more just, more beautiful, whatever it might be. We were just about out of time. And I I actually, I wanted to just go back to something when we talked about at the very beginning, which was doing these jobs of running nonprofits is just plain hard. And I thought maybe it might be nice to sort of end our conversation today thinking about you making that shift. You are in the same you know, you work for the same place and the place is changing and you're, you know, moving from a, you know, a corp kind of corporate job to a nonprofit CEO. And, and maybe there's a takeaway in that for the sector that you're coming to grips with as an individual. <laughs> oh, that's a giant question. Um, and one that I hope your listeners will help me figure out. Um, I've realized that I need to talk to more terrific CEOs because one of the things that the Chronicle we often focus on is the ones who maybe get in trouble or aren't necessarily doing a whole lot of great work. And so one of the joys of this job is now I'm looking out for the very best ones and trying to ask them for lessons about what things they wish somebody had told them when they started this job. I think, you know, for us, one of the things that is, it's fascinating to think about the responsibility you have to so many other people. We've always talked about serving our readers and we always have known that it's incredibly important that we do that well or else why would somebody just subscribe or go to our webinars or do that? But there's a different level of accountability that I've been thinking about and also making sure 
that we are free of any conflicts of interest. You know, obviously we cover foundations, we cover big donors, we're accepting money from those people. How do we make sure that everyone knows that we've got really strict code of ethics and separation and that the, you know, the journalists have no idea who I'm approaching for funding or what I'm asking for. We're seeking general operating support. How crucial that is. I have never understood it as well as now that, you know, we're operating and the different ways that foundations ask folks to provide information. I work with some of the best foundations in the country, but each one of them has asked me 25 different questions. When I think about a less well-resourced organization than mine, I just shudder every once in a while to think, how do they keep up with all of those things? We made so much progress in the pandemic in simplifying grants and thinking about things in a different way, but we have to keep going further and really think about the toll it takes on organizations to not be focusing on results, but on filling out forms and doing those kinds of things. And, you know, I know most grantmakers want us to learn and think about impact, but there have to be some better ways of sharing that information. And I, the foundations that do that and tell me that's what they're doing, I just adore them and respect them so much. I don't see it everywhere in the sector, unfortunately, and I'd like to see more of that. We also had talked about, when you and I first met, about professional development for folks who are leading nonprofits. And as someone who is stepping into that space, what do you see out there in terms of professional development? Do you see any, do you see any gaps that somebody but you ought to be out there filling? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think trying to find things that people can do in the amount of time that they have available, not CEOs are working really hard. You mentioned the challenge people have of communicating with their boards or taking time, you know, to make sure they're communicating well with their staffs and their communities to build trust, to do all those kinds of things. How do we make sure that we also make sure that professional development is something that goes along with your workday as part of it that's really meaningful that you can put into action that is appropriate for the size of your organization and the kind of group that you are running and operating. One of the things at the Chronicle we're looking at is ways to especially tailor our information by a group's budget size, because it turns out that matters really a lot more than it the does. cause itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I see that gap when I'm looking for things. I'm loving the fact that there is this huge increase in the number of nonprofit news organizations that are sprouting up, but that by itself isn't enough to help me figure out how to do what I'm doing. I need to learn from arts organizations, environmental groups, other mm -hmm. kinds of things. So finding ways to bring us together, those of like-sized organizations, and also at the point in our careers, both as nonprofit executives, but in the life of our organization. The things that I'm dealing with, some of them I will never have to deal with again, filing with the IRS, I hope, you know, that kind of thing. I had to learn a lot in that process, but, you know, that won't be five years from now. I'm going to have a whole different set of challenges and problems and who's going to help me along the way. So those are the kinds of things that as I look out there, I have seen some things, but I think we could use more of it. That is another area, you know, grant makers could make a giant difference supporting and making sure that things are strong, you know, that there's great offerings, but also, you know, many grant makers have done things like offer sabbaticals and paid for those for nonprofit executives. Those kinds of folks who understand how hard it is also need to put more money into the coaching and professional development yes. of the staff. If we truly expect there to be a new generation of leaders, we need to help them. And, you know, I, I in some ways, I can't think of anything more important for big donors and foundations to invest in, because that's what leads to all the other changes and growth. So I think we could all do a lot more. And you know what? I don't think it's going to cost nearly as much no. as dealing with the challenges you know, of climate change or those kinds of things, which we still have to keep pouring money into. But this is an easy problem to fix. It's an easy problem to fix and way, way, way less expensive than, way less. than what it might cost should someone stumble. Right. Yeah. And so I think two quick comments before we close. One is, you know, I have a online membership site with content and community that was specifically designed for smaller nonprofits because of a recognition that a consultants and coaches were going to be hard to come by, but because they had shared and like experiences. So I think that's really, really true. Secondly, we've got to get over our, the, the bias that exists out there to either ask for a coach 
or for boards to recognize the importance of coaching. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many search firms I have spoken to who have said, gee, you know, so-and-so, I should really recommend that so-and-so, you know, such-and-such an organization retain you as a coach for their new CEO. But they will say, wait, we just paid all this money for you to recruit a rock star and you think the person needs a coach? Hell yeah is the answer. But so there's a mindset shift there. Then the last point, and I just finished writing a blog post this morning, I had the benefit of having sort of management training from corporate America, right? I know how to manage people. I, lear- I learned the rigor of that, the discipline, the process, the systems, and so many people who run nonprofit organizations never got management training. They came up through the ranks. Their organizations are small. They came out of programs or they came out of fundraising. And more and more of the people that I coach, I'm dealing with things that are managerial more so than they are, how are you going to crush your next board meeting? How is your gala speech going to make people scream from the room wanting to raise money for you? So these are things I think that, and they aren't expensive fixes. Yes. So with that said, we are out of time. And I want to just want to say that I don't think we've had a depressing conversation at all. <laughs> because you actually have to look at what the factors are as you go into 2023, as Stacy has so eloquently spelled them out, right? She talked about, just in case you didn't take notes because you were driving or on the elliptical, right? <laughs> she talked about economy and trust and polarization and the great resignation and pay equity, right? We talked about PD and professional development. These are things that can be just lenses as you look through 2023 and your own budget and and your goals and strategies for next year and how you're going to factor those things in. So I I actually think them less negative and more, okay, how am I going to How am I going to address those things so I control what happens rather than these things controlling us? So, Stacey, I am excited about your uh, your journey as a nonprofit CEO and look forward to everything that the Chronicle of, I mean, the Chronicle of Philanthropy is already sort of such an incredible resource to the sector and a Bible in so many ways. So it's, it's exciting to see and imagine what the next chapter of the journey is going to look like. And they couldn't have, have a better person at the helm transforming the, org- the organization from one to another. Thank you, Joan. And as I said, please, listeners, let me know what kinds of things we can do to support you more. We're in this wonderful rebuilding stage, so I'm all ears. Excellent. We'll put that all in the show notes. And until next time, thank you very much, Stacy, for joining us. And thanks to everybody for listening. See you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.